Hello, and welcome to episode 23 of 10-0. I'm Maria. And I'm Caitlin. How we doing, besides being slap happy as fuck? <laughs> Six hikers came across a female body in the San Bernardino Mountains. The head and hands had been cut off, which made it an identification difficult. I'm pulling you and reading faster than my comprehend. <laughs> well. Her body had been wrapped in a blanket and had only been there for less than a day. Investigators learned that Dorothy had been reported missing by her husband around the same time that the body had been found. Arthur's report stated that Dorothy was taller and thinner than she actually was. Her body was identified by a bunion on her foot, which she had had surgery for a few months prior. Imagine that being your one distinguishable feature. That had to be one fucking hell of a bunion. (laughs) I mean, yeah. To be... That identifiable. Right. That has to be one hell of a bunion. It's a lot to take in. That's a, that's a big bunion. Yeah. It had been removed. Right. So. Yeah. You know. Yeah. <laughs> While investigators knew the identity of her body and had suspicion that Arthur was the killer, they had no evidence to support this. He had sold his car to an officer who found dried spots of blood in the trunk. You dumb. First off. Clean the damn car if you're going to sell it. I can't. Well, I mean, back then they didn't know that, like, we have so many things that are common household items that can remove blood in, like, every way, shape, and form. So, I mean, I guess I can understand. But at the same time, Clean your damn car. Clean your fucking car. If you're selling it. I mean, I'm like the worst person to say clean out your car because I have kids and... They're heathens. They're... (laughs) They they leave (laughs) destruction behind every time they get out of it. So, it's like once a week. I'm like, take a trash bag, go clean the car. And they fill the damn thing. So... Jesus. I mean, I'm exaggerating on the filling the damn thing, but even still... Continue. Uh, I lost my spot. Ah. After Arthur sold his car to an officer, he was promptly arrested when they found blood spots in the trunk. A new search turned up pieces of Dorothy's flesh, a gun, and a handsaw. And pieces of tissue, bone, and fat were found on the gun. So he pulled a Dexter. A shitty Dexter. Yeah. Well, yeah. A real shitty Dexter. Yeah. yeah. Arthur was convicted and sentenced to death, and he was executed in the gas chamber at San Quentin. What's our lesson of the day? Don't be a garbage human. Clean out your car and. Don't be a garbage human. Yeah. <laughs> Simple as that. All right. So, are you going first or am I going first? Um. I mean, I kind of went last last time, and we saw how that turned out. So. Well, I have a doozy. Okay, then. ten pages of notes. Jesus fuck. I thought Gacy was long. But, okay. We also do notes that are different. Yes, yes we do. Because I have to be organized about it. Well, mine's organized. It's just in the form of, like, a story instead of... Here's the facts. We're going to talk about it. Mm -hmm. But, alright, I'll go first. So... We're going to the year 1966. Okay. We're going to Point Pleasant, 
West Virginia. And we're talking about a humanoid. Okay. Any guesses? West Virginia. Why does that sound familiar? I texted you about the museum on my way to vacation. Oh, my Yes. Excellent. <laughs> All right. So it was the year 1966 when a strange creature surfaced in the small town of Point Pleasant. This creature was described as being at least seven feet tall with a humanoid body and a wingspan of at least 10 feet in length. Nice. Yeah. So that's like having a little bit less of me on either side of its body. Yeah. That's ugh, it's unnerving. It's distinguishing feature, two glowing red eyes that terrified anyone who saw them. For the next year, this strange moth-like creature continued to terrorize the residents of Point Pleasant. Thus, the legend of Mothman was born. Mothman is a large creature thought to inhabit the TNT area located just outside of Point Pleasant, West Virginia. This winged creature first appeared on November 12, 1966, in front of five men who were digging a grave in Clendon. 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 Approximately one hour and 20 minutes away from Point Pleasant. Just three days later, on November 15th, Two couples going for a nighttime drive through the TNT area spotted the creature again. Terrified, they sped off at over 100 miles an hour, but the strange being had no trouble keeping up with that. With that big of a wingspan, I... I, No. The couples were chased back into town where they reported their sighting to the deputy sheriff, Millard Halstead. There's not a lot of things that creep me out. Right. Right? A giant bug man. Just wait, it gets better. (laughs) The next day, Deputy Hollistead and the couples held a press conference at the city courthouse to share the story. It was then that the creature was named Mothman because of its strange appearance. Later that night, another famous sighting occurred when Marcella Bennett drove to a friend's house which happened to be located inside the TNT area. So if you've ever driven through Virginia or West Virginia, you see blasting areas all over the place. That's what this is. It's basically a big blasting area. When she got out of the car with her baby, she was startled as a large creature started to come out of the shadows near her car. Her fright caused her to drop her young child, though she quickly recovered from her shock picked up the baby, ran inside, and quickly locked the doors. And then they didn't have car seats either. So that, that could have, oof. That could have ended badly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wasn't going to go there. And trauma. I'm just saying, I need to know the name of this kid. Allegedly, Mothman climbed onto the porch and peered through the windows at the family, but disappeared before the police arrived. Okay. Could you imagine something that big being on a porch? I'm good. I have, like, goosebumps just talking about this shit. I don't want the giant bug man. I don't do bugs. (laughs) (laughs) Over the next few months, Mothman terrorized the town. Nearly 100 people came forward with eyewitness reports between... 
November of 66 and December of 67. So in one year, a hundred people came forward. During this time, the town of Point Pleasant also experienced paranormal and possibly extraterrestrial activity that was thought to be somehow linked to Mothman. We'll get back into that later. There's a lot of theories, and some of them are very, very (laughs) far-fetched. But some of them could possibly be true. Um, Those who saw Mothman claimed that he was a large, gray, humanoid-type creature with massive wings. He is thought to stand between 5 and 7 feet tall with a 10-foot wingspan. Mothman's head is described as being oddly shaped, sitting close to the creature's body. Some people even describe him as being headless, with only two eyes protruding above his torso. Additionally, his bright eyes are said to be extremely large. So, going back to the headless part. Yes. Are his eyes supposed to be on stalks? Is that what they're trying to... No, they're... Okay, so imagine the head of a fly. Okay. Um, have you seen the movie A Bug's Life? Yeah. Okay, so how... Well, you haven't <laughs> seen a shit ton of movies, so... Okay, so in that movie, the fly's heads are, like, very close to their bodies. Yeah. And very, like, low yeah. shaped. And then they've got these big, huge red eyes on either side. That's pretty much what they're trying to describe. So it has more of like a bug-like head. Bugman. <laughs> Mothman is also capable of incredible flying capabilities. The couple who saw him on the night of November 15th, he was able to keep up with their car at 100 miles per hour without flapping its wings. He is also capable of weaving quickly between dense forest areas and raising straight into the sky like a helicopter. These flight patterns are beyond the current capabilities with solo flight devices like jetpacks, causing many people to disregard the possibility of a prank. Though many people are divided on the nature of Mothman, it has been noted that the creature has never harmed a human being during its encounters. This has caused many believers to think, That the Mothman means no harm, but instead tries to warn people of impending danger with its presence. This later evidenced further with the collapse of the Silver Bridge, as many witnesses claimed to have seen the Mothman on the bridge just before it fell. Others make arguments for the creature's nature and cite the disappearance of Noel Partridge's dog and the ancient legend of Chief Cornstalk as evidence. Again, we'll get into that later. It is their belief that the Mothman is a creature of danger and chaos who seeks to put humans in dangerous situations. Either could be true. Many people claim to have witnessed UFO sightings and paranormal experiences during Mothman's time in Point Pleasant, leading many to believe that Mothman could be an extraterrestrial creature. The arrival of the mysterious Indrid Cold, also known as the Grinning Man, Seems to give theory to this foundation. Right. On November 2nd, 1966, 10 days before the first Mothman sighting, Woodrow Derenberger was driving back to his mineral wells, West Virginia, when he was cut off by what he thought was a car. The vehicle forced him to slow down and then pull over to the side of the road. When he got closer, he realized that the contraption was not a car but a strange craft that resembled a kerosene lamp chimney. 
A figure then exited the craft and walked to his car. The figure looked very human in appearance and was wearing a coat that was a metallic blue color. He spoke to Woodrow and told him that he meant him no harm. Strangely, the man did not move his lips with his mouth, and his mouth remained fixed in its smile, which later led to people, people to call him the Grinning Man. Woodrow realized that the man was speaking to him telepathically. The man introduced himself as Indrid Cold and told Woodrow that he was a, from a different galaxy. They conversed for nearly tw- ten minutes before the strange man returned to his craft. Before he left, he wrote to report his experience to the authorities. And Woodrow's story was published and corroborated by several witnesses who saw him pull over on the side of the road and talk to a strange man. Several of the witnesses were even able to describe the odd craft the exact same way. Others who saw the Mothman were questioned by strange men in black with pale, translucent skin. They were asked if they had witnessed the Mothman, and if so, what they had specifically seen. Many people reported that they talked in a strange, almost robotic tone that made them nervous. Anyone who was questioned and who had in fact seen something related to Mothman was told to remain quiet on the subject. Several of the witnesses received anonymous threatening phone calls that warned them not to speak about the Mothman. Extraterrestrial enthusiasts claim that the descriptions of these strange men match alien species. The sightings of these strange men combined with the Mothman leads many to believe that the Mothman may be an extraterrestrial creature that somehow found its way to Earth. Hence why it could have disappeared. Others who believe in the Mothman prefer a more scientific approach. Their theories about the Mothman's origins are largely influenced by the home of the creature, the TNT area. The TNT area was constructed during World War II. It was situated near a large wildlife preservation area, ensuring that the area was remote and rarely frequented. The TNT area is comprised of many miles of igloo-type concrete domes. The military used these spaces to create and store weapons of mass destruction. After the war, the site was abandoned. Many toxic substances from the weapons that were stored leaked down in forest area. Others believe Mothman is the embodiment of a 200-year-old curse. This curse can be traced back to the death of Chief Cornstalk and several, several of his tribesmen. Chief Kaitagua, which translated to Cornstalk, wanted peace with American colonists who were trying to occupy the land of seven different Native American nations. Unfortunately, there were many on both sides who opposed to this idea. On November 7th of 1777, that's a lot of sevens, Uh Chief Cornstalk traveled to a fort in an area called Point Pleasant and tried to engage in peace talks with the colonists to prevent fighting. He insisted that the peace was necessary because the British were trying to convince the other nations to join with them to oppose the colonists, and that he and his tribe stood in. However, he feared that he could not hold them back much longer. Fearful, the colonists took him and his companions prisoner and detained them in, inside their fort. Chief Cornstalk was considered to be a skilled fighter and military genius, and was greatly respected by both sides. By detaining him, the colonists hoped that they could prevent the Native Americans from attacking. Two days later, on November 9th, Chief Cornstalk's son, 
visited the fort to see his father and was also detained. On November 10th, gunfire was heard near the Kanawha River. When soldiers from the fort went to investigate, they found that two men who had left to hunt for deer had been ambushed by the Native Americans. One was dead. Enraged, the soldiers outburst into the quarters of Chief Cornstalk and his companions and brutally murdered them as revenge. Strange events occurred later in history, such as a lightning bolt that twice destroyed a monument erected in honor of the colonists who fought for the Ohio River Valley. When the Mothman appeared appeared in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, many people were convinced that he was yet another punishment set upon the land from the angered spirit of Chief Cornstalk. Surprisingly, the first sighting of Mothman may be traced back 40 years before he appeared in Point Pleasant. The beginning of January 1926 opened with the appearance of a strange creature in southeastern China. The locals described this creature as a man-dragon that could frequently be seen hovering over um, one of their monuments. (laughs) I'm not even going to attempt to butcher that. On January 19th of 1926, the monument collapsed, releasing nearly 40... Oh, it was a dam. Dear Lord. Okay. The dam collapsed, releasing nearly 40 billion gallons of water into the surrounding farms in the valley. The death toll is estimated to be well over 15,000, though many records of this disaster have been destroyed. On November 12th, 1966... The Mothman was first sighted flying over a cemetery by five men, and they described the creature they saw as man-like, a man-like figure who could fly. Okay, so three days later, on the night of November 15th, Noel Partridge's dog started growling at a creature outside. Partridge heard an odd noise and went outside to investigate with a flashlight. He was startled to discover the Mothman. Partridge tried to call his dog back into the house, but the dog darted off into the night after Mothman because it was a trained hunting dog. Partridge ran into the house to grab his rifle and go after his dog, but was too scared to go back outside, and he never saw the dog again. Coward. Sorry, but if my dog is running after something, I'm getting my boyfriend the biggest gun I can find, and I'm going after it. I'm getting my dog back. I don't know that I would run after Bugman. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the same night, two married couples were taking a late night drive. They seen a large dog, <laughs> a large dog carcass on the side of the road on their way out of town. Upon reaching the TNT area, they saw a large winged humanoid with glowing red eyes. I can't say large, apparently. <laughs> the creature chased them back into town and managed to keep up with them even though they were speeding. When they drove back into town, they noticed the dog's carcass was gone. They went looking for it later, but it was never found. Uh, many believe the dog's carcass was Partridge's hunting dog. On the night of the 16th, we had the lady who dropped her baby. <laughs> <laughs> Um, by the time the police arrived to investigate, Mothman was gone. Hundreds of other reporting, reported sightings um, 
happened during this time. Um, but we're going to go through the most notable and outlandish that I don't believe. Okay, so I lied. We're going to go into our eyewitness encounter first. So our eyewitness is my mother. She, like me, is very in tune to, like, weird shit. Um, and she was born in 1960. So this is going to set, like, the time frame here. She was about eight or nine, so this would have happened between 66 and 69. She believes she was nine at the time. Um, her, my uncles, my aunt, well, great aunt, and her two kids, and my grandpa, my grandma, which is a whole other, and my great uncle were on a road trip from Indiana to Virginia to visit our family. Our family lived in Abs Valley, Virginia, so you had to go through parts of West Virginia and Ohio to get there. Um, So they're driving, and they had gotten into West Virginia, and the car broke down. It was, like, dusk at this point. Um, And my mom swears that she saw Mothman fly over the vehicle. No one else saw it. Everyone else was sleeping at that point. They had been in the car for like eight hours at that point. Um, and she tried telling my great aunt. And my great aunt looked at her and goes, no. You know, we don't believe in that. Basically a liar. Nothing ever happened. I asked my mom if she could recall what she thought he looked like. And she told me he was mostly human, approximately like six and a half feet to seven feet tall, covered in like hair. Like if if an animal had mange, like how you can see most of their skin, but there's like little bits of fur poking out. With glowing red eyes and a wingspan that was longer than their car. Which, back then, probably not. Um, All of those cars back then were boats. So, um, I mean... With the way that she described him in detail, I honestly think she saw it. But yeah. I'm still on the main part, sorry. I know. So... Here we go with some of the notable and some outlandish stories of eyewitness encounters. Um, I don't think I believe all of these. Some of them maybe, but some of them are a little far-fetched and I I put them in here just because of how outlandish they are. Um, Like there's one about like more recent events that just blow my mind that that would even be a thing. (laughs) So on December 15th, 1967, the silver bridge collapsed during rush hour traffic in the hours before the collapse. And even during the event, many witnesses claimed to have seen the Mothman on top of the bridge. The collapse was devastating and 46 people lost their lives 
as their cars were plunged into the river below. After that, the Mothman was never seen in Point Pleasant again. Okay. So that one kind of makes it believable. Um, so fast forward to 1978. On the morning of September 10th, a group of miners was heading to work in Freiburg, Germany. When they were confronted by a strange man in a trench coat. When they got closer, they realized it wasn't a man, but a strange creaker. Creature. <laughs> Creature with huge wings. It appeared to have no head, but had large growing red eyes on what glowing. God damn it, Maria. <laughs> Told you, I can't say the word large tonight without fucking up the word behind it. <laughs> large glowing red eyes on what seemed to be its chest. So again, kind of like the buggy feature that we talked about earlier. Um, They stood in the entrance of the mine staring at the creature until it let out a terrifying scream that made them turn and run away from the mine. An hour later, the mine collapsed. Well. So, I mean, that supports the evidence that, you know, it's trying to warn people, I guess. But. Was he trying to warn people, or did he do it himself? Fair. Okay, so fast forward again. We're going to go to Chernobyl. Oh, fuck. Nothing good ever happened. <sighs> Throughout the year of 95, many scientists, workers, and citizens who lived near the power plant in Chernobyl saw a large bird-like creature with the body of a human man flying around the nuclear plant. Are they trying to say he caused Chernobyl? No. They claimed this terrifying creature had glowing red eyes. They're not saying that it caused it, but he was seen around the area in the time that it happened. Fast forward a year to April 26th of 1986, the creature was spotted before a huge explosion that became one of the most famous nuclear accidents in history. Witnesses also saw the er, creature flying through the smoke and wreckage after the horrifying event. This is where it gets kind of iffy, and I don't believe this one at all. Several days before the terrible attack on September 11th, several people saw a strange flying creature near the Twin Towers. Those who saw the attack report that the same creature was flying parallel to the second plane as it hit the tower. I'm pretty sure if that was the case, someone would have recorded it, and we would see some kind of documentation somewhere. Yes, that was my thing. How many people have seen this? Because I feel like New York. Right. Someone was bound and determined to see it. And there's so many recordings of the planes hitting. Right. People jumping from the building. And that's the thing. Did they see someone jumping from the building? Or did they see someone flying? I don't really know. I don't either. Uh, We're going to go to 2007. At the end of June, Mothman began surfacing in Minnesota. Minnesota. (laughs) The reports were concentrated in Minneapolis and the surrounding areas and the I-35 bridge itself. After a month of sightings, the bridge collapsed on August 1st, 2007. The collapse was devastating, killing 13 people and injuring 145 others. 
residence in La Junta, Mexico. I don't know. Um, they began seeing a large black red-eyed creature in 2009. The creature reportedly stalked the town just before the swine flu outbreak that devastated the area. Several witnesses reported being terrified by its screaming, and one was even chased by the creature. Local authorities searched for evidence, but it was never found. Maybe he is trying to warn. Maybe. So, here's another one. Um, This one is possibly... I don't know if they're blaming him or... Again, he's trying to warn. Two witnesses were out near Japan's Fukushima power plant in March of 2011 when they heard a loud screech. They turned back to see a creature sitting on top of the power plant. It suddenly unfurled its wings and began to fly towards them. They were horrified by a pair of glowing red eyes that were looking right at them. But the creature disappeared soon after. Shortly after the creature appeared to them, Fukushima was devastated by an earthquake and the power plant the witnesses walked by exploded. I feel like it could go either way. Like, he's trying to warn people, but then... Yeah. Is he causing these things? Right. So, as sightings of this cryptid continue into present day, many people wonder if Mothman is more more than a myth that haunts the town of Point Pleasant. There seems to be no consensus on whether the creature means harm towards humans or if it, if the sightings of the Mothman seem to precede tragedies and loss of life. I feel like it's a however you perceive life kind of thing, like SFMD plus apple kind of thing. See, I, I think a lot of cryptids are misunderstood to a point. Unless there's, like, science evidence behind it that proves otherwise. Or even paranormal information that provides otherwise. Like skinwalkers. That can go either way. Wendigo? Eh, no. They're here to fuck shit up and leave. <laughs> like, I just... <laughs> I mean, it just depends on the creature. And I think with most of these sightings, or supposed sightings, and everything that's happened afterwards. I feel like it's trying to warn, but at the same time, is it causing things? Like there's not enough there to judge. I don't know. There was something I saw, I don't know if it's accurate or not, but people leave like on the anniversary of the sighting, the statue, yeah. People leave cans of beans at the statue. <laughs> I want to know what that's all about, though. Like, honestly. Like, what's with the fucking beans? Because <laughs> now I'm going to have to look it up. Hang on. <laughs> I need to know. Oh, I mean, I don't know. Do I believe that Mothman is real? Absolutely. Am I pissed that I didn't stop at the fucking museum? Absolutely. Like, I even tried everything in my power to get Marcus to stop, and no. 
he was mean and he wouldn't do it. He said we'd go back the same way we came and we didn't. We went through Tennessee and he made me drive through the mountains. And <sighs> I do not like driving somewhere I'm not familiar. Like if it's a flat interstate, I all day, every day. But going through mountains and having vehicles fly past me at like 80 miles an hour, even though the speed limit's 60, terrifies the shit out of me. I can't do it. So there's things on Reddit about people leaving beans at Mothman. But not... Why people are leaving beans at Mothman? Because I need to know. Why are we leaving beans at Mothman? If anybody knows, send us an email comment on one of the posts that we're going to make when this comes out. Something. Because I need to freaking know what's with beans and Mothman. I'm not finding anything. I need to know. Oh my gosh. Okay. I don't get it. So, this person. I packed a can of beans for the Mothman, but ended up leaving them in the car when I got to Point Pleasant. Um... In the spring, mischievous Mothman fans began leaving cans of baked beans at the foot of the statue depicting West Virginia's best-known cryptid, amusing some and annoying others. It's a reference to the video game Fallout 76, which is set in a post-apocalyptic West Virginia. Players could summon the Mothman by using baked beans, apparently. I should have known that. Because I've played Fallout. I feel like people have driven, like, hundreds of miles to leave a goddamn can of freaking baked beans. That statue is, like, fucking amazing, though. At the statue. Have you statue? Mm Mm-hmm. Like, the intricacy is just amazing. But this guy, um, actually is a, um, journalist. Mm Mm-hmm. So, he ended up going to originally like visit the mothman urban legends bar and grill the museum um but instead because they were closed wandered the waterfront and looked at the statues and stuff like that um but it's kind of nice to know why though now that you know we figure that out i mean it is but it isn't because Fallout 76 was like one of the better video games um, that came out. <laughs> right. For a statue. Yeah. It's not like he takes the big beans and eats them. Like they're just going to sit there until well, somebody does not I mean, them. how do we know? How do we know that he doesn't come and steal all the cans of baked beans? <laughs> We're going to have to take a road trip and find out. Yeah, I guess. So we are going to Cleveland. Oh. In the 90s. Well, I guess it starts in the 90s. Well. Ish. That was 30 years ago. Fuck off. (laughs) I had to. I was aging myself, not you. I know, but I was born in 1990, and it just makes it that much worse. 
I'm so fucking old. <laughs> you love me. <laughs> okay. So, Ariel Castro. Yeah. Born July 10th of 1916 in Dewey, Puerto Rico. The day after me. Oh, Jesus. I don't like that. Yeah, I don't like that. Castro's parents divorced when he was young, and he moved to the U.S. with his mother and three siblings. They settled in Reading, Pennsylvania, and then moved to Cleveland. Castro met his girlfriend. Why does Reading, Pennsylvania sound so familiar? Because it's a big city. No, I think something happened there, like paranormal thing. Continue. Squirrel. <laughs> it just hit my brain, and I'm like, what the fuck? Castro met his girlfriend, Gramilda Figueroa. It's a hell of a name. When his family moved across the street from hers in the 80s. During their relationship, they lived with both of her parents, both of their parents, sorry, and then found their own home at 2207 Seymour Avenue in 1992. Gramilda's sister, Alita, said that their relationship got rocky when they moved to the Seymour house. Castro started beating Figueroa, at one point breaking her nose, ribs, and arms. Oh. This caused a blood clot in her brain that resulted in an inoperable tumor. Jesus. He had also thrown her down a flight of stairs, which caused a skull fracture. Oh. Yeah, he's a great human. No, garbage. Yeah. In 1993, he was arrested for domestic violence, but was never indicted. Grimilda moved out of the home in 1996 and gained custody of their four children. They were, there were multiple reported incidents of threats and Castro abducting the couple's daughters from Grimilda. In April of 2012, Grimilda died due to complications from her brain tumor. Before his arrest, Castro was a bus driver for the Cleveland Metropolitan School District until he was fired for, quote, bad judgment. This included making an illegal U-turn with children on the bus, using his bus to go grocery shopping, and leaving a child on the bus while he went for lunch, and leaving the bus unattended when he took a nap at home. Oh. At the time of his arrest, Castro's home was in foreclosure for three years of unpaid real estate taxes. Oh. Three. That's a lot of taxes. Yeah. I don't know what... Taxes are like in Ohio, but I can't imagine they're great. Hmm. Probably not. So, on to the nitty gritty, I guess. Castro kidnapped his victims by offering them a ride to wherever they needed to go. Of course. He drove each victim back to his house and lured them inside where he took them to the basement and restrained them. Hmm. So, the first victim was Michelle Knight. She was born April 23rd of 1981. She disappeared on August 23rd of 2002 after leaving her cousin's house. She was 21 years old at the time of her kidnapping. On the day of her disappearance, she was scheduled to appear in court for custody of her son, Joey. After Michelle was rescued, police admitted that limited resources had been used to find her since she was an adult. She had been removed from NCIC, which is one private information center. This happened 15 months after her disappearance. I would have never known that that's what NCIC stand for. You never know. Yes, I knew that. Oh. <laughs> I, say, I, I was being sarcastic. <laughs>
she actually wrote a book. We'll cover it later. But Michelle actually wrote a book that's very interesting. Hmm. Uh, Amanda Berry was next. She was born April 22nd of 1986. She disappeared on April 21st, 2003, which was the day before her 17th birthday. That sucks. She was last seen around 8 o'clock p.m. when she called her sister to tell her that she was getting a ride home from her job. The FBI initially considered her a runaway a week after her disappearance when an unidentified male used her cell phone to call her mother. He said, quote, I have Amanda. She's fine, and she'll be coming home in a couple of days. Hmm. She did not come home in a couple no. of days. No. Barry was featured on a 2004 segment of America's Most Wanted, which linked her to Gina DeJesus, who by that point was also missing. Self-proclaimed psychic Sylvia Brown told Barry's mother in 2004 that her daughter was dead and that she was in water. Oh. However, this did not stop Amanda's mother. She continued to look for her until she died of heart failure in March of 2006. Oh. December 25th of 2006, Amanda gave birth to a daughter who was proven to be Joe's via DNA. That would suck. Next is Georgina Gina DeJesus. She was born February 13th of 1990, went missing on April 2nd of 2004 at age 14. She was last seen on her way home from her middle school. Gina was friends with Castro's daughter, Arlene. So he already had an end with her. She was a month older than me. Not even. 21 days. No. I was looking at her disappearance. Oops. Shortly before her disappearance, Gina and Arlene had called Arlene's mother, Cromilda, to ask permission to sleep over. Cromilda had said no, and the girl's mother said her voice. Arlene was the last person to see Gina before her disappearance. And Gina thought that Castro was picking her up to take her back to her house. A year after her disappearance, the FBI released a composite sketch and description of a male suspect described as a Latino, 25 to 35 years old, 5'10", 165 to 185 pounds, with green eyes, a goatee, and a thin beard. After her parents, Gina's family held vigils for her. Castro had attended two of these, at least. What kind of sick fuck? A garbage human. Does that shit. A walking trash bag. A walking trash bag. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh. Nervous laughter. Not mm-hmm. laughing, that's funny. Uh, Castro actually participated in the search for Gina. He participated in several search parties. Of course he did. Because he's one of those people who seeks the thrill of things like that. Being involved. Yeah. Not being involved. Exactly. He's involved, but he's leading them in the wrong direction. Yes. So on to their captivity. This is fair warning. This is where we get gnarly. Um, Castro kidnapped Michelle first. She was taken to an upstairs bedroom, and her hands and feet were tied together, so she was hogtied. He would pull her up using her hands, feet, or neck. Michelle was left there for three days without food. 
she kept a diary during her captivity. She spoke of, quote, forced sexual conduct, of being locked in a dark room, anticipating the next session of abuse, of dreaming of someday escaping and being reunited with her family, of being chained to a wall, of being held like a prisoner of war, of missing the lives that they once enjoyed, of continuous abuse, and of desiring freedom. The women were kept in locked upstairs bedrooms where they were forced to use plastic toilets that were emptied infrequently. They were fed one meal a day and allowed to shower twice a week at most. <sighs> Michelle told police that Castro had gotten her pregnant at least five times and forced miscarriage each time through beatings, hitting her with dumbbells, punching her, and slamming her against walls. He would also starve her. <sighs> Michelle's grandmother told reporters that she would require facial reconstruction due to the beatings that she endured. She had also lost hearing in one ear due to a heart. What the fuck? At one point, Michelle had a pet dog while she was in captivity. It snapped its neck because it bit him while he was trying to protect Michelle. Gina told police that she had been raped multiple times, but she did not believe that she had ever gotten pregnant. Um, December 25th of 2006, Castro made Michelle assist in the birth of Amanda's child, which took place in a small inflatable swimming pool. He threatened to kill her if the baby didn't survive. Jesus. At one point, the baby had stopped breathing, but Michelle performed CPR and got her back. Castro would take the baby out of the house to visit his mother. He made the baby call him daddy and his mother grandma. We're a sick, sick fuck. Jesus fucking Christ. In 2013, Castro showed one of his adult daughters a picture of her and said that she was his girlfriend's daughter from a previous relationship. He had told others that she was his granddaughter. Amanda taught... The baby had to read and write while they were in captivity. According to Cleveland police, officers visited Castro's home once following the kidnappings to discuss an unrelated incident. Castro wasn't home at the time and was interviewed at a different location. Of course he was at home. Right. Neighbors claim to have called the police about suspicious activity observed at the home, but police say that there is no record of such calls. Yeah. Well... Obviously, we know that's wrong for media coverage, so. Yeah. Uh, moving to their escape and rescue. May 6th of 3013, apparently. <laughs> God bless. Amanda was able to make contact with a neighbor, which led to her escape with her six-year-old daughter and the rescue of Michelle and Gina by police. According to police, Castro left the house that day and Amanda realized that he had not locked the big inside door, although the storm door was bolted. She did not attempt to break through the outer door because she thought Castro was testing her, which he frequently did, and if they attempted to escape, they would be severely beaten. Amanda screamed for help when she saw neighbors through the screen. While a neighbor responded to Amanda calling for help, he was not able to communicate effectively due to not speaking much English. They then kicked a hole in the bottom of the storm door and Amanda crawled through with her daughter. The neighbors took her home where she called 911 saying, help me, I've been kidnapped and I've been missing for 10 years and I'm here, I'm free now. 
Officers responded to the Seymour Avenue home and entered. They walked through an upstairs hallway with guns drawn. After peeking out from a bedroom door, Michelle went away and leaped into an officer's arms. Gina was shortly found. All three women and the child were taken to the hospital for evaluation. This rescue also gave hope to the Ashley Summers case. She disappeared in Cleveland in July of 2007. Police initially believed that there could have been other captives in the home, but they didn't find anyone else. As of August 2021, Ashley is still missing. I just got chills. Mm -hmm. On to trial. Uh, Castro was arrested May 6th of 2013. He was charged with four counts of kidnapping and three counts of rape on May 8th. These charges, charges carry a sentence of 10 years to life in Ohio. Two of Castro's brothers were also taken into custody but were released on May 9th after it was determined that they weren't involved. May 9th, Castro's bail hearing. Bail was set at $2 million per kidnapping charge, totaling $8 million bail. Still not enough. I agree. Still a lot. Still yeah, but still not enough. The sad thing is, like, I remember all of this media coverage like uh-huh. it was fucking yesterday. Yeah. It was 23. This was two years after I graduated, so I would have... I was almost 19. Additional charges were reported to be pending, including aggravated murder for the intentional miscarriages, attempted murder, assault, a charge for each instance of rape, a kidnapping charge for each day the girls were held individually. That's a lot of fucking charges. Not mad about it. Ten years worth of charges. Not mad about it. I'm not either. May 24th was uh, Castro's attorneys decided that he would plead not guilty to all charges. You know, even though he had a child with one of them. Of course. June 12th, Castro officially entered a not guilty plea on all charges. July 12th, a this is going to be a fun county name to say. Cuyahoga. I think. How does it spell? C-U-Y-A-H-O-G-A. Yeah, I don't know. Cuyahoga. That's what we're going to go with. Sure. <laughs> uh, the grand jury turned a list of charges for the entirety of the women's captivity. There were 977 counts total. Jesus, fuck. 512 counts of kidnapping, 446 counts of rape, 7 of gross sexual imposition, 6 charges of felony assault, 3 charges of child endangerment, 2 of aggravated murder, and 1 charge of possession of criminal tools. July 26th, Castro changed his plea on 937 of the 977 charges against him, including the kidnapping, rape, and aggravated murder. This was part of a plea bargain which called for consecutive life sentences plus 1,000 years in prison without the possibility of parole. Under the plea deal, Castro forfeited his right to appeal and could not profit in any way due to his crimes. Oh, okay. So, possession of criminal tools is defined according to the Ohio Revised Code ORC 2923.24. 
as anyone who possesses or has under their control any substance, device, instrument, or article with the purpose of or intention of using it in a criminal act. So it could have been like it could have been anything. anything. August 1st, Castro's sentencing hearing was that day. He was sentenced to multiple life terms in prison plus 1,000 years. He was also fined $100,000. Before his sentencing, Castro addressed the court for almost 20 minutes. Of course he did. He stated that he was a good person. No, he's not. And not a monster. Bullshit. (laughs) Can I get through this, please? No. Go ahead. But that he was addicted to sex and pornography. He claimed that he had never beaten or tortured the women and instead insisted that most of the sex he had with them was consensual. Lovna. Heavy hey, you're the one who wanted to get through it, so I kept my comment to myself. That's not fair. He closed with, I hope they can find in their hearts to forgive me because we had a lot of harmony going on in the home. Bullshit. What kind of harmony did you have in it? Oh, my God. When you were raping and beating the shit out of three women and had a child with one of them and almost had five other children with another one. The fuck? Oh, shit. Sorry. Um. Mm-hmm. Gina and Amanda's family both spoke, and so did Michelle. She said, quote, you took 11 years of my life away. I spent 11 years in hell, and now your hell is just beginning. I will overcome all that has happened, but you will face hell for eternity. I will live on. You will die a little every day as you think of the 11 years of atrocities that you inflicted on us. I can forgive you, but I will never forget. I like that. You should read her book. Like it's, it's nuts. I almost don't want. Moving on to after the trial, all three women released a video statement on July 9th of 2013, thanking the public for their help and support. Their attorney said that they still have a strong desire for privacy and did not wish to speak to the media about what had happened. Understandable. The Cleveland Courage Fund established, and it was a bank account that was set up to help them independence. Good. People had donated over a million dollars at the time of the video's release. That kind of restored my faith in humanity a little bit back then. Oh, yeah. Now, not so much. But at least back then, yeah. Before Amanda's disappearance, her grandfather had promised her a Monte Carlo built in the year that she was born. He kept the car after her disappearance in the event that she was found alive. He still had the car when she was rescued was in desperate need of restoration from sitting unused for 11 years, obviously. There were several local body shops that offered to fix the car for free. It's not me crying at all. (laughs) Michelle had an interview with People Magazine telling her story one year after her release. And since her release, she has changed her name to Lily Rose Lee. And she started getting tattoos as a way of coping through her healing process. Hey, tattoo therapy. Absolutely. I definitely believe in that. Michelle revealed that her son had been adopted by his foster parents while she was in captivity. In her, in 2014, Michelle released a book, which I've mentioned multiple times, Finding Me, A Decade of Darkness, A Life Reclaimed, a memoir of the Cleveland, Cleveland kidnappings. This one, this, this makes me happy. As a condition of Castro's plea bargain, the house on Seymour Avenue was demolished. 
Good. On August 7th of 2013, Michelle was there and handed out yellow. And the best part of the story is Castro's death. September 3rd of 2013, he was found hanging from a bed sheet in his cell at the Correctional Reception Center in Orient, Ohio. He was 53 at the time of his death. Okay, so on Google Maps, you can still see it. That's dumb. But if you go to 3D view, I don't think the right house. Like, there's a big empty lot next to it. I think it's the lot next to it. I don't think that's the right house. But I also can't go to street view on my phone, I don't think. No, I can just do satellite for this app. Oh, maybe I lied. October 10th of 2013, the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Correction released a report that suggested Castro may have died from autoerotic asphyxiation instead of suicide. That's a lot to unpack. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Well, it gets better. This report also noted that two guards had falsified logs saying that they had checked on Castro hours before he was found dead. Honest, I probably wouldn't check on him either just because I have a very, I probably wouldn't either. Very however, black heart, and I just when you're that much of a shit fucking person, I'm not gonna check on you. I probably you wouldn't either. Not. However, but they were their jobs are probably gone now. <laughs> Castro was not on suicide watch, but he was supposed to be checked every 30 minutes due to his quote notoriety. Hence the heavy air quotes that nobody else can see. <laughs> On One-time performance only. Thank you. Thank you and good night. On December 3rd, an outside consultant released a report and officially concluded that, quote, all available evidence pointed to suicide, including a shrine-like arrangement of family pictures and a Bible in Castro's cell, an increasing tone of frustration in his prison journal, and the quality of spending the rest of his life in prison while subject to constant harassment. Well, you kind of did it to yourself. Exactly. <laughs> kind of did it to yourself. So now I don't feel bad for you. Stupid fucking crisis. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. I mean, not trying to make light of the situation. That was a horrible situation. Mm. But he did it to himself. But yeah, that's our shit show for this week. All of our episodes are shit show. Yes, yes they are. <laughs> yes they are. You can find us on Facebook at... <laughs> no. <laughs> Ten... <laughs> what fun would that be? Oh, Lord. 10 0 uh... <laughs> 10-0 True Crime and Paranormal Stories from yeah. behind the headset. Oh, shit. How about Twitter? <laughs> no. At 10 Paranormal. <laughs> She's dying for some reason, in case you can't tell. <sighs> Our Instagram is 10 underscore 0 underscore podcast. Are you good now? <laughs> no? No? Okay. <laughs> Our email is 10-0podcast at gmail.com. There you can send us your personal stories so we can do listener episodes every month like we really want to. Or you can send us your... She's still fucking dying. 
Or you can send... <laughs> oh, shit. Or you can send us your case suggestions. <laughs> Apparently, Caitlin's going to be a case because she can't breathe. But anyway. Uh, oh, you can... <laughs> I was trying to be inclusive, but I guess not. <laughs> You can find us on Patreon, where we have four different levels of um, donations, or you can donate whatever you'd like. Um, they range from a shout-out on the podcast to our most intricate pain-in-the-ass decal that we hand-make ourselves, because we love you. Yes. Um, yeah. I'm going to throw this out there. Since I custom-make cups and shirts and all sorts of other fun stuff, we can get... 500 followers between Facebook and Instagram. So 250 apiece. Your names will be put into a bucket and we will draw for a custom, well, not really custom. It'll be a personalized. So it'll have your name on it. Um, 30 ounce tumbler with our decal. And we'll throw in some other stickers and some decals. It'll be this big, huge, extravagant giveaway. Um, but to do that, we need your help to grow our pages. So if we can get to 250 between the two, well, on each. So a total of 500, we will do a giveaway. But we will not do a giveaway until we hit that point. So make sure you share us so you can get a cool-ass cup because she makes awesome cups. I do. She may or may not have made me a polyjuice one, and I'm kind of in love with it, just saying. <laughs> that being said, shameful little plug here. <clears throat> if you want to see some of the work, that way you can kind of see what you're getting into. By entering this giveaway, you can look up Recently Deceased Boutique on Facebook. And that is my business page. So stay safe. And try not to become the next 10-0. <laughs>